This is Dan Fleisch, and this is the podcast for the last portion of Chapter 4 of A Student's Guide to Vectors and Tensors. In this last portion, we're going to be talking about the last three sections of Chapter 4. That is Section 4.7 on Index Notation, and then Sections 4.8 and 4.9, which talk about quantities that transform contravariantly. That's Section 4.8, and quantities that transform covariantly. That's Section 4.9. Section 4.7 begins on page 122, and it starts off by reminding you that you've actually seen the beginnings of index notation earlier in this chapter when we were doing coordinate transformations, and specifically rotation of coordinates, and we wrote the angles as alpha sub 1, 1 and alpha sub 1, 2. Those subscripts 1 and 2 were examples of index notation, which is going to be described more fully in this section. As it says in that first paragraph of this section, we could equally well have written these alpha factors as alpha sub xx, or alpha sub xy, or alpha sub yy, but by using 1 and 2, we've made them a little more general and a little more convenient, and we'll talk about why that is next. One thing that's easy to understand is this. If we're going to deal with coordinate systems with more than three dimensions, which we certainly will later in the book, X, Y, and Z aren't going to do it. And as it says in the text, if you use numbers 1, 2, 3 instead of X, Y, Z, you know exactly what comes next. It's 4. But if you use X, Y, Z, what's next? Do you go back around to A? So one reason for index notation is its easy extensibility to multiple dimensions. Another one is that X, Y, Z is fine when you're in Cartesian coordinates, But when you're in spherical coordinates, the three coordinates are r, theta, phi. If we use index notation, where we simply designate the coordinates or the components by numbers, then they can stand for any coordinate system. This is talked about in the section paragraph of this section on the bottom of page 122, where you see some examples of vector components written as a sub 1, a sub 2, a sub 3, or a superscript 1, a superscript 2, a superscript 3. If you've been tracking the previous sections, you'll realize those are the difference between covariant components, which use subscripts, and contravariant components, which use superscripts. And once we've started using numbers, we have n-dimensional space. We simply continue that numbering all the way up to capital N. So if you adopt this number instead of letter system for the components or coordinates, equation 4.6 from earlier in this chapter now looks like equation 4.43 on the bottom of page 122. This equation formally said a prime superscript x over a prime superscript y on the left side of the equation. Now it says a prime superscript 1 and a prime superscript 2. Once again, just replacing x and y with 1 and 2. The 2 by 2 matrix in the middle already had the numbers instead of the letters. And then on the far right, that column vector formerly said a superscript x and a superscript y. Now it just says a superscript 1 and a superscript 2. It's pretty clear how to extend this to three dimensions. You see that in equation 444 at the very bottom of page 122. So that's a transformation equation showing you how to get the vector components in the primed system on the left side of the equation by applying the transformation matrix to the vector components in the right side of the equation. But with index notation, you can write this in a much more compact and simpler way. And the beginnings of that are shown on the top of page 123. There I've just written out the three equations that equation 4.44 represents. But if you look at the terms on the right-hand side, you'll notice that we've called the transformation matrix terms, instead of cosine alpha 1, 1 and cosine alpha 1, 2, we've simply called those lowercase a sub 1, 1, lowercase a sub 1, 2. And in this way, these lowercase a's can represent other forms of transformations, not just ones that are cosine of some angle. 
but in the case of rotation, they mean exactly what is shown in the previous equation, the cosine of the alpha angles. Now when you write it this way, you might notice something interesting. Look on the right-hand side of the equation, and you'll notice that in the elements of the transformation matrix, the lowercase a sub 1, 1, for example, that's followed by the vector component in the original system, uppercase a superscript 1. And in the next term, the transformation matrix element lowercase a subscript 1, 2 is followed by the vector component from the original system, uppercase a superscript 2, and likewise for the third term. Now notice that the second index in the transformation matrix elements, 1 in the first term, 2 in the second term, 3 in the third term, matches the component in the original system, that is a superscript 1 in the first term, superscript 2 in the second term, superscript 3 in the third term. And that's true not just for a prime superscript 1, but for the next two equations as well. The second index in the transformation matrix always matches the index of the vector component in the original system. Well, if those always match, we can write each of these three equations in a simpler way. And that's shown in equation 4.46, right below 4.45. There you see, once again, we've written uppercase A superscript prime 1 equals, and now we've got the summation symbol, the Greek uppercase sigma, that is the summation symbol. In this case, we've written underneath it J equals 1 to tell you where the summation starts, up to J equals 3, which is written above it. And then the elements of the transformation matrix are written as lowercase a sub 1J times the vector component uppercase A superscript J. So we've written the j's in place of the 1's plus the 2's plus the 3's that we had in equation 4.45. You can do the same thing for the next two equations, and they just look like a superscript prime 2 equals, again, the summation from j equals 1 to 3. Now we've got the transformation elements lowercase a subscript 2j, and then the vector component uppercase a superscript j once again, and likewise for the third one. Notice we could not have used that summation symbol, j equals 1 to 3, had we been using our x, y, z coordinates on the right-hand side of this equation. But we can even simplify this a little more. Since in the first equation, the superscript on the left side is 1, and the first index of the transformation matrix is 1 on the right-hand side, and then in the second equation, the superscript is 2, and the first index of the transformation matrix is 2. And in the third equation, the superscript on the left is 3, and the first index of the transformation matrix is 3. We can call that another index. We'll make that index i. For reasons you'll see in a minute, that's called a free index. And by allowing i to take on values 1 or 2 or 3, we can write equation 446 as 447 in the middle of page 123. Notice that now it says uppercase A superscript prime I is equal to the sum from J equals 1 to 3 of lowercase A, those are the transformation matrix elements, and the first index, which formerly had read 1 or 2 or 3, now reads I. The second index shows J as before, followed by the uppercase A superscript J as we had in the previous equation. Now, in order to alert the reader to exactly what values i takes on, we have to write that over to the side. Since these represent three separate equations, we don't have a summation symbol, so there's nowhere to write where i equals 1, 2, 3 within the equation itself. Instead, we just write it over to the right, as is shown in equation 4.47. For the next simplification, we can thank Albert Einstein. He realized that whenever you have an equation that combines within one factor, that is not between additive terms, but within one of those terms, a subscript index and a superscript index that are the same, 
such as the J's in equation 447, they're always summed. You don't even have to write the summation symbol because they're always summed. So you can just leave off the summation symbol and get equation 4.48, which now shows the left side exactly the same, uppercase A superscript prime I equals, and instead of the summation, we can simply say lowercase A subscript IJ times uppercase A superscript J, and the reader knows to sum over J, even though the summation sign is missing, because J is repeated as an index, one lowercase, one uppercase. That's called a dummy index, because if you think about it, I could have used any letter there. We're just going to substitute the numbers 1, 2, and 3, and therefore it doesn't matter what letter I choose. It's up to the reader to know over what values J runs in order to do the right number of terms in that summation. So this idea of leaving off the summation sign, whenever you have the same subscript and superscript index, as I hope you recognize from the previous sections, that is a covariant index and a contravariant index that match. Whenever you have those combined in a term, you can simply leave off the summation sign because you know that these are going to be summed over. We're about to put this into practice, but before we do that, you should look at the last paragraph on the bottom of page 123, where it talks about the fact that this little equation, 4.48, even though it's only got a few symbols in it, has the exact same content as equation 4.45, three equations, each with three terms, on the top of page 123. It's just far more concisely written when you use index notation and the summation convention. So don't lose sight of what this is telling you. There's no summation sign, but we're adding a series of terms, that is the components in the original coordinate system, the uppercase A superscript J's, we're adding those together, each one multiplied by a weighting factor, which is lowercase a subscript IJ. In other words, we're forming the weighted linear combination of those terms in order to get the vector components in the new coordinate system, which are on the left side of the equation, uppercase A superscript prime I. So we understand what the elements of the transformation matrix are in the case of rotation. Those are the cosine alpha terms that we talked about previously. But we can gain new insight into vectors and tensors if we look closely at those transformation matrix elements for quantities that transform contravariantly and for quantities that transform covariantly. The first of those is the subject of section 4.8. As it says in the first paragraph in section 4.8 on page 124, index notation and the summation convention really go beyond just convenience and they make it much easier to understand how to make the transition from thinking of vectors as quantities with magnitude and direction to thinking about vectors as belonging to a class of objects known as tensors and how they transform from one coordinate system to another. To make that transition, it helps to think about a small length element, a differential element of length called ds in this paragraph, and how that length element transforms from one coordinate system to another. It's worth remembering that in general, you cannot write the coordinates of one system in terms of weighted linear combinations of the coordinates in another system. The example I use in this paragraph considers Cartesian xyz coordinates and spherical r theta phi. You cannot write x as the weighted linear combination of r and theta and phi. There's no factor you can put in front of r and theta and phi and add them up to get the x value. You know that's true because in order to go from r theta phi to x, y, and z, there are cosines and sines involved as there will be with any curvilinear coordinate system. 
So if we can't write the coordinates of one system as weighted linear combinations of the coordinates of another system, is all that transform work we've done so far useless here? Fortunately not. Even though you can't write x as a weighted linear combination of r, theta, and phi, it turns out that the increment in x, that is a small change in x, is related to a small change in r and theta and phi in a linear way. That is, you can write a weighted linear combination of dr, a tiny increment of change of r, and d theta, again, an increment of change of theta, and d phi, an increment of change of phi, Weight those, add them up, you get dx, and that's shown in equation 4.49. You can do the same thing for dy and dz. It's just that instead of having a sub 1, 1, a sub 1, 2, and a sub 1, 3, you'd have a sub 2, 1, a sub 2, 2, and a sub 2, 3 for dy, and a sub 3, 1, a sub 3, 2, and a sub 3, 3 for dz. The important point is, if you look at only the differential elements, now you can use all the formalism we've developed for transformation matrices and weighted linear combinations to understand how a differential length element will transform from one coordinate system to another. So we'll call the new coordinate system, the one you're transforming to, we'll call those coordinates x prime, y prime, and z prime, and the original coordinate system, the one you're coming from, x, y, z. So the length elements become dx prime, dy prime, and dz prime in the new coordinate system, and dx, dy, dz in the original coordinate system. That's on the bottom of page 124. Now how do you know how much the x prime coordinate will change if you make an incremental change in x and y and z? Partial differentiation to the rescue. Take a look at the top of page 125. There you see in the new coordinate system, dx prime, the small change in the first coordinate, the x prime coordinate in the new system, is related to the change dx and the change dy and the change dz in the original coordinate system by the equation shown on the top left. Notice, the factor in front of dx is the partial of x prime with respect to x. And the factor in front of dy is the partial of x prime with respect to y. And the factor in front of dz is the partial of x prime with respect to z. This is just how partial derivatives work. But it also shows you that the weighting functions in front of each of the increments of one of the coordinates are partial derivatives. Now below the dx prime equation you'll see a dy prime equation and a dz prime equation, but I also wanted you to see how this would look once you're using index notation, and that's over on the right side of that same equation. We're still using 450, the top of page 125, but notice now instead of saying dx prime it says dx prime 1, instead of saying dy prime it says dx prime 2, and instead of saying dz prime it says dx prime 3. Likewise, in the original coordinate system, the dx becomes dx1, the dy becomes dx2, and the dz becomes dx3. So we've simply let x go to x1, y go to x2, and z go to x3, and the same for the primes. But once we've got it in this form, we can do exactly what we did in the previous section, which is we can write this as a matrix equation. That's shown as equation 451. The three equations on the right side of equation 450 are exactly the same as equation 451. And if we want to write individual equations using summations, they look like the next line, where you see dx prime 1 is the sum from j equals 1 to 3 of the partial of x prime 1 with respect to xj dxj and likewise for dx prime 2 and dx prime 3. But just as we did in the previous section, we can now substitute the free index i 
for the 1, 2, and 3 of these three increments in the new coordinate system and get equation 4.52, where we have dx prime i is equal to the sum from j equals 1 to 3 of the partial of x prime i with respect to xj times dxj. Now we can use Einstein's summation convention. Leaving off the sum, we get equation 453. Once again, this has the exact same information in it as the right side of equation 450 on the top of the page. It's just written in a far more concise manner. But once we've got it like this, by comparing this equation to equation 448 from the previous section, we can understand why we've written the coordinates with superscript indices rather than subscript indices. I've rewritten equation 448 here for your convenience, and notice what it says. On the top of page 126, it says uppercase A superscript prime I is equal to lowercase A subscript IJ times uppercase A superscript J. Compare that to equation 453 at the bottom of page 125. I walk you through that on the top of page 126, but basically it's pretty straightforward to see you've got a left-hand term, which is prime, that is, it's in the new coordinate system. It's got a superscript i, and that is equal to a term involving the ij indices and another term which has a superscript j. So by comparing these term by term, you can see that the contravariant vector components in the new coordinate system are just the weighted linear combination of the contravariant vector components in the original coordinate system. And in our equation for the transformation of the length element, the partial of x prime i with respect to xj is playing the role of the transformation matrix a sub ij. In other words, when you're transforming the coordinates from the unprimed to the primed system, the partial derivatives serve as the elements of the transformation matrix. But here's the important insight into that. Back in chapter 2, section 2.6, if you skipped that, now would be a good time to go back and read that. You can see that partial derivatives such as this are in fact the components of the basis vectors tangent to the original, that is unprimed, coordinate axes. But you know that the basis vectors tangent to the original coordinate axes are the covariant basis vectors. And since contravariant vector components combine with covariant basis vectors in order to get an invariant quantity, it seems that the differential length elements must transform in the same way that contravariant vector components transform. Because the weighting factors we're using to combine them to get to the prime system are in fact the components of the covariant basis vectors. And you know that an element of length in one coordinate system must be the same as that same element of length in another coordinate system. It may have different x, y, and z values, but the total length of that increment must be the same no matter which coordinate system you use. This is why we've written the coordinates dx and dx prime with superscript indices because they will transform from the unprimed to the primed system using the same transformation matrix that the contravariant vector components use. This is why people say the differential length element is the prototype for contravariant vector components. That is, it shows them how to transform from the unprimed to the primed coordinate system. Because of this, a lot of authors start out by saying contravariant vector components are defined by equation 4.54 on the top of page 127. 
there you see the contravariant vector component a prime i is equal to the partial derivative of x prime i with respect to xj times the contravariant component a superscript j in the unprimed coordinate system. Many authors use this as the definition of contravariant components. It can sometimes be a little hard to relate to what's going on using primes and numbers, so I always like to look at an example, and that's what's done for the remainder of this section on page 127. Let's say you're transforming from polar, that is r theta, to two-dimensional Cartesian, or xy, coordinates. Since we're ending up in the xy system, we're going to call x prime 1 x, x prime 2 y, and in the original system, r is x1 and theta is x2. So let's see what our partial derivative weighting factors in equation 454 look like in this case. Let's see if those are really the components of the basis vectors pointing along the original r and theta axes. The derivatives are taken in equations 455 and 456. There you'll see the partial of x prime 1 with respect to x1 is just partial of x with respect to r. Well, you know that x is r cosine theta, so when you take the partial with respect to r, you get cosine theta. Right below it, you can see what happens when you take the partial of x with respect to theta, you get minus r sine theta. And on the right side of these two equations, you see what happens when you take the partial of y with respect to r and y with respect to theta. Okay, so we end up with a cosine theta and a sine theta and a minus r sine theta and a plus r cosine theta. You can see the question right after equation 456. Do these really represent components of vectors that are tangent to the original coordinate axes, that is the r theta axes? Let's plug them in as the components in the new coordinate system. Remember, we're ending up in Cartesian, so in the new coordinate system, the components go in front of i hat and j hat. So if the partial derivatives from 455 and 456 are in fact the components of the original r and theta basis vectors in the new xy coordinate system, we should be able to plug them in front of i hat and j hat, and we should get a vector that points in the r direction and a vector that points in the theta direction. Those are plugged in in equations 457 and 458. You'll notice we've called the vectors e sub 1 and e sub 2, and they do not have the little caret hat. They have an arrow hat over them because it's going to turn out they don't necessarily have unit length. Let's plug in the values we got from equation 455. We said that the cosine theta is the component of the first basis vector in the new coordinate system. That's i hat, so we write cosine theta i hat. The right side of equation 455 gives us the other component in the new coordinate system. That component goes with the j-hat basis vector, so we write plus sine theta j-hat. Those two terms, cosine theta i-hat and sine theta j-hat, should represent the first basis vector in the original coordinate system expressed in the new coordinate system. Likewise, equation 456 tells us the components in front of i-hat and j-hat for the second basis vector in the original coordinate system. And do e1 and e2 turn out to be pointing in the direction of the r basis vector and the theta basis vector? Yes, they do. When you take cosine theta i hat and add sine theta j hat, no matter what value you put in for theta, you'll see that is pointing radially away from the origin, exactly as the r basis vector must do. You can see an easy example of that. Put in theta equals 0. You get cosine of 0 is 1 times i hat, and sine of theta is 0 times j hat. It's pointing in the i hat direction, which, if you're on the x-axis, as theta equals 0 must be, you're pointing radially outward 
from the origin, exactly as the R basis vector should. Likewise, if you put in theta equals 0 to equation 458, you get minus R sine of 0, that's 0 I hat, plus R cosine of 0, that's just R times 1 J hat. That means you've got a vector that is pointing straight up in the j-hat direction. It's scaled by r, so it's not a unit vector, but it is pointing perpendicular to the r direction, which is exactly what the theta basis vector should be doing. So equation 457 represents the first basis vector from the original system expressed in the new system. And 458 represents the second basis vector in the original spherical coordinate system, that is the theta basis vector expressed in the new xy coordinate system. So the point of this example was just to show you how the partial derivatives in equation 454, that is the weighting factor in front of the covariant vector components, or if you will, the weighting factors in the transformation of the different differential length elements relate to basis vectors. So the major point of this section is that differential length elements transform using the same transformation matrix as contravariant vector components. And the elements of that transformation matrix are the partial derivatives of the new coordinates with respect to the original coordinates, which are also the components of the original basis vectors expressed in the new coordinate system. You might wonder, well, what uses the same transformation matrix as covariant vector components? And that's the subject of the next section. Section 4.9, which begins on page 127, begins by reminding you that the previous section showed why the differential length element serves as the prototype for quantities that transform contravariantly. And says if you're wondering about the prototype for quantities that transform covariantly, you should think about things like the change in temperature over space, which might have units such as degrees per meter. We're talking about the gradient of the temperature. If you need a little review on gradient, you should look back on chapter 2. But the idea here is that the gradient has dimensions that are the inverse of the coordinate dimensions. So instead of dimensions of meters, we get dimensions of something Per meter. So since the length dimension appears in the denominator, that makes the gradient a good candidate for the prototype for quantities that transform the inverse way from the differential length element. That is, a prototype for quantities that transform as covariant vector components. So at the top of page 128, a function f of x, y, z is described. It could be the temperature or density in some region. And the rate of change of that in various directions is given by the partial of f with respect to x. That's the x direction rate of change. The partial of f with respect to y. That's the rate of change in the y direction. And the partial of f with respect to z. That's the rate of change in the z direction. So what if we change coordinate systems? What happens to those rates of change? Well, clearly, while the components may change, the rate of change should be invariant. So let's see how that works out. We start out by writing the chain rule, as in the middle of page 128, where you can see the partial of f with respect to x prime is written as the combination of three terms. The partial of f with respect to x times the partial of x with respect to x prime, plus the partial of x with respect to y times the partial of y with respect to x prime, and the partial of f with respect to z times the partial of z with respect to x prime. That is, if we want to know the rate of change of the function with respect to the x prime coordinate, we've got to say how much does that function change with respect to x, and how is the change in x related to the change in x prime? Likewise, we've got to add in a term for the change in f with respect to y, as well as how much y changes with a change in x prime. And the same thing for z. 
Now, I wanted to write the next terms next to this. Unfortunately, there's not room on the page, so I had to put the little arrow below. And now we see the exact same equation, except using index notation. X has become X1, Y has become X2, Z has become X3, and likewise for the prime coordinates. But those two equations are saying exactly the same thing. Then the next block of equations down says, what is the rate of change of F with respect to Y prime? And again, it's written both in terms of x, y, z and in terms of the index notation. And then below that, what is the change in f with respect to z prime? Again, in both x, y, z and index notation. Well, just as we've done in the previous two sections, we can now write one matrix equation. That's equation 459 on the bottom of 128, which contains that exact same information. We can write out our three equations as we do on the top of page 129 using the summation symbols for j equals 1 to 3. If instead of writing three equations, we write it as one, we insert the free index i, that's equation 460, and we use the Einstein summation convention, that gives us 461, which you should compare to equation 453 back on page 125. Notice in the earlier equation, we had dx prime i, that is the i component of the incremental length element. Now we've got the partial of f with respect to x prime i the gradient of the function with respect to that first coordinate in the new primed coordinate system. And on the right-hand side of equation 453, we had the partial derivative of x prime i with respect to xj. Now we've got the partial of xj with respect to x prime i, the reciprocal of the partial derivative we had in equation 453. And in equation 453, the last factor was dx sub j, the incremental length element in the original coordinate system, and we've got the partial of f with respect to xj, that is, the gradient with respect to the coordinates of the original coordinate system. So once again, the vector components, in this case of the gradient of f in the prime coordinate system, are the weighted linear combinations of the vector components of the gradient of f in the unprimed coordinate system, and the weighting factors are those partial derivatives just as they were in the previous case. But in the previous case, those partial derivatives turned out to be the basis vectors pointing along the original coordinate axes, that is, the covariant basis vectors. Now we've got the reciprocals of those partial derivatives, and those represent the basis vectors that are perpendicular to the original coordinate axes. In other words, these are the components of the contravariant or dual basis vectors. And just as before, we know that to get an invariant quantity, we need to combine the contravariant or dual basis vectors with the covariant components. So therefore, where the differential length element transforms like contravariant vector components, the gradient transforms like covariant vector components. Now remember, in the case of orthonormal coordinate systems, there is no difference between the original and the dual basis vectors, and there is no difference between covariant and contravariant vector components. But in general coordinate systems, the original and dual basis vectors are different, and the contravariant and covariant vector components are different. Because of the way the gradient and covariant vector components transform, you'll find many authors using equation 462 as the very definition of covariant vector components. There you see that a prime sub i is equal to the same partial derivatives as in equation 461, that is the inverse of the partial derivatives from the previous section, times a sub i, that is the covariant vector component in the original coordinate system. That's the major idea of this section. 
Now that you've been through index notation, the summation convention, and both differential length elements and gradients as prototypes for quantities that transform in various ways, it might not hurt to give these three sections another read-through since now you have some idea of the outcome. Even more helpful, I think, is to work problems involving these concepts. There are 10 of them in the Chapter 4 problem set. Full solutions are available on the book's website.